We're looking at Genesis chapter 10 together. Um, This is our 17th Sunday in the book of Genesis. And after uh, this morning, our our plan is to pause our our, uh, journey through Genesis. And during our annual month of prayer on into Easter, we'll be looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. We plan to relish and rejoice in the person work of Jesus as he reveals himself there. But for now, we're considering finishing up what, what some would, would say is really the, the, the prologue or the introduction to Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 serves as a kind of on-ramp into Genesis 12 through 50, which we'll pick up on back uh, up, up in April. Uh, but for now, Genesis 10, 1 through 11, 9 is what we're looking at together this morning. Genesis 10, 1 through 11, 9. As you're turning there, I'm going to take a moment and, and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Lord, we, we come to you this morning and, and we ask that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to uh, come under, to submit to the truth of your word. And pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And these things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Again, we're looking at Genesis 10.1 through 11.9. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And we're going to read all of our passage this morning, and um, there are some names in Genesis chapter 10, so uh, please pray for me as I try to pronounce them. Yep, and uh, let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the Word of our God here in Genesis 10, 1 through 11, 9. Well, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togermah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland Peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Re'amah, and Sabteca. The sons of Re'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kasulihim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorhim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. 
and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazar Maveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, and Sheba, Offer, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You can be seated. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. Those are the words of a sonnet by Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's a rather famous poem. You 
You might know the poem, you might even know the story behind it, or you might not. But Shelley was prompted to write this sonnet in the 19th century when the remains of a a statue of an Egyptian king, Ramses II, were discovered. Of course, all that was left of the the once great and remarkable statue was, was mere rubble and fragments, all of which seemed to mock the statue's once legible inscription, claiming Ozymandias to be king of kings. Shelley tells us nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. Indeed, this morning we come across a very similar kind of monument, right? Christopher Walken has said of our passage this morning that it, that it stands as a parable of failed self-aggrandizement. And much like Ozymandias, we come across this group of people in Genesis 11 here that are hell-bent on their own self-glorification, but who instead meet with a humiliation which serves as a cautionary tale to us. And so this morning we see here on the one hand, we're going to be warned against following this, this similar sort of path in our own lives. Such paths do not lead to human flourishing and joy, but to disappointment and destruction. But what's more is that our passage also beckons us to a better way to a more humane and life-giving way, which can only be found in knowing and trusting the God we find revealed here in our passage. Well, what I want to do to kind of outline our time this morning is I want to spend just several minutes walking through our text and explaining what it says, and then I want to spend several moments thinking through how it applies to our lives today. And so we're just going to spend our time together doing some explanation and some application But as we get into this explanation, as we get into chapter 10 here, we encounter right off the bat a new toledote, right? Genesis 10.1 says these are the generations, these are the toledote of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And and this new toledote, just as the others, alerts us to the fact that we're entering into a new section of Genesis here. Remember that that the, the book of Genesis is organized around these these genealogies and this use of the word toledote, right? But now this section of Genesis is actually relatively short compared to some of the others. This section of Genesis is actually just the entirety of our text this morning, Genesis 10, 1 through 11, 9. Uh, From there, we're going to get into the rest of Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, in which two new toledotes will take us on to the next section of the book, which focuses on Abraham and his family, and, and, and so this text brings to a close our time in what is, what is, as we said earlier, is really something of like a long prologue, like an on-ramp to the rest of Genesis. It tells us some noteworthy things about human history, about the entirety of the human race, but only then to lead us on into a section about a particular family and a particular tribe, all descending from the patriarch Abraham. And indeed, our text this morning is, is very much concerned with the history of all of humanity, right? In fact, this is one of the things that, that probably differentiates this toledote from other toledotes throughout the book of Genesis. So ordinarily, when we come across a, a toledote, it's typically going to walk us through a genealogy of a figure significant in the story. And, and this 
this Genesis 10 Toledo, this is not just a genealogy here. It is that, but it's more. Uh, Sometimes this text, this very text, will be often called a a table of nations. Uh, And by table, we don't mean like a a flat piece of furniture with four legs, right? Uh, We mean like an organized list of records, a catalog. And, and, and this is a list, this is a catalog, a catalog of nations. It doesn't so much tell you just about individuals that came from Noah's family, although it does do that, but it moreover provides an organized list of the nations and tribes and clans that came from these men. It tells us where some of the tribes dispersed to and dwelled. It tells us about their kingdoms and their territories. In fact, verse 32 just sums it all up perfectly. This Toledot tells us about the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. You see, this, this Toledot is more than a genealogy. It's a table of nations. Now, there are two important realities we, we observe as we look at this table of nations here. The, the first reality, is we can't help but notice, is that the human race despite all of our geographical and linguistic and cultural differences, the human race is actually a single human family. Now, Genesis 10 here is not meant to be a comprehensive list of all those that came from Noah's family. In fact, one of the interesting things we notice here in the table of nations is that it adds up to exactly 70 names of those who descended from the sons of Noah. Uh, and that number 70 is significant. We'll see it again later in Genesis and another Toledot. But the, 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 the number here is, is intentional. It's, it's specific, but it's not entirely exhaustive. But part of what the number 70 is meant to communicate here is a sense of wholeness, a completeness, uh, a, a fullness. The number seven and multiples of seven in the Bible are, are obviously significant. And they're typically meant to represent to us a sense of completeness. And with that, the use of the number 70 here and the table of nations is meant to communicate that the whole of the human race, all of the nations of the earth, come from this family and this people and from these sons of Noah. In other words, the human race is a single human family descending from the, far, the same far-off grandparents, even in the midst of all our, our diversity and differences. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks of this very reality in Acts 17, 26, when he says that the Lord made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. He says, all peoples come from this one people, right? All are united as a single human family. We are all distant cousins, as it so happens. As uh, Herman Bobbing puts it, the human race is one entity. And the implications of that are, are, are not difficult to see. You know, if, if that's true, then that means that there is Therefore, no room among any human beings for assertions of racial or ethnic superiority, right? No people, no nation are of a different stock from the rest of humanity. So we all 
come from the same people, we all carry the same nature, we all share the same DNA, and, and thus no one people of any shade of skin or any ethnic background is fundamentally superior to another. We all came from the same stock. The many are actually one. And yet chapter 10 also shows us this, this other reality, that the one are also many. We are indeed a, a single human family, the lot of us, as we see here. And yet it's also just obviously true that there are real differences between those of us who belong to the human race. Real geographical, cultural, linguistic differences exist. And Genesis 10 speaks of that too. Each section ends with the same refrain here, verse 5, verse 20, verse 31. They all say, there are, these are the sons of so-and-so by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations, right? The one human family are also diverse. They are many clans and languages and nations who dwell in many different lands. And thus, chapter 10 here is really just begging us to ask the question, where did that come from? How did, how did that start? If humanity is all one single family, how did this whole different clans, languages, lands, and nations business come about anyways? In the name of old Peleg there uh, in 1025, he gives us a bit of a hint as to uh, something that has taken place that might make that happen here. His, liter his name literally means division. And he was named such because it says, in his days, the earth was divided, it says. And that brings us to, to what took place in this kingdom of Nimrod. In Genesis 10.10 10 there, it says that there was a, a, a city in Nimrod's kingdom called Babel. And Babel means confusion. And that city we find in Genesis 11 is the source of all of this division and confusion we're reading about in Genesis 10 here. Which brings us to Genesis 11.1-9 1 now. Genesis 10 is the table of nations. It tells us about some of the peoples and nations that were dispersed throughout the world from Noah's family. But then Genesis 11, 1 through 9, is where we find the Tower of Babel, which tells us the story of what prompted that dispersal, okay? And, and it begins here by telling us that the whole earth had one language in the same words. So you read that and you go, not anything too noteworthy there, right? Uh, that's what you might expect among a single human family, all coming from the same household. But, but it goes on to tell us that this people had migrated together to a plan in the land of Shinar and settled there. And at, at this point, our passage is, is marked by this repeated phrase, come let us, come let us, fill in the blank. The people of Babel say it twice in verses 3 and 4. And then the Lord enters the scene in verses 5 through 7, and he actually says it himself once. And so if you look at verses 3 and 4 there, you'll see two come let us statements from the people. They say, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for, for mortar. And then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And we're going to stop right there for a minute. At this point in the story, you very well might think, well, this is great, right? Everyone is together, and they're working together in a shared project, and they seem to be getting along. They're like agreeing with each other. 
That's definitely more than can be said for the last six or seven chapters of Genesis, right? And what's more is, is that they're actually, they're doing something good. They're doing something that they were created to do in the first place. Remember the cultural mandate we've been talking about throughout Genesis? Humanity was created in God's image so that we ourselves might be creative. We were made by our maker so that we might imitate him and our own making. Uh, in Genesis 1, God formed and filled the earth in his creative work, and then he made us in his image to form and fill the earth like him. And in fact, the very words of these Babylonians here are an echo of the divine words in Genesis 1.26. Did you see that? Remember, in Genesis 1.26, the Lord said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make. And indeed, some have thought the echo of those words there in Genesis 11 are meant to show the arrogance of the builders here. However, I, I think it's rather appropriate based off what we were commissioned to do and be in Genesis 1 in the first place. The, the cultural mandate means that we were created to do precisely what we see these people doing here. They were created and we were created and commissioned to do these very things, to make new technology, just like this, this bricks and bitumen. They're, they were doing what they were made to by forming a culture and making a city and building its buildings. That's not the problem here. The problem comes when we see what they say in the latter half of verse 4 here. They reveal the motivation of their building and making. They say they want this tower to reach up into the heavens. And they say that they're doing this so that they can make a name for themselves. And they say that they're doing this so that they won't be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, those words show us a threefold problem with this building project. And, and, and the first is that this project was meant to be God-evicting. That, that was the motivation, at least. At the heart of this project, was an effort to rebel against God and evict him from his rightful place as the king of heaven. We see this as, as this tower is being built to have its top in the heavens here. Now, this tower is, is almost certainly uh, what, what is often called a, a ziggurat, which was a type of building that was not all that uncommon from this part of the world in this time period. There are several places in which ancient ruins of these ziggurats have been found. They were like these great temples and palaces that reached far into the sky, and they were built like that as a symbol of humanity asserting lordship over not just the realm of earth, but over the realm of the heavens too. As Richard Phillips puts it, these ziggurats represented the realm of the gods, and they allowed man to be master there. In other words, they were building a tower that reached up into the heavens, and this could be understood here as an attempt at like a hostile takeover of heaven. Uh, Nancy Guthrie rightfully concludes in that these people are not gathering to pray and spur each other on to trust in God. They're gathering to organize a rebellion. This is meant to be God-evicting here. But then along with that, in addition to being God evicting, this project is meant to be self-exalting as well. And we see that clearly in that they're building this tower in the city in order to make a name for themselves. They're trying to make much of themselves. Now, I should say, 
having a great name, being made much of, is not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 14, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, right? Just following the chapter here, just the, the following chapter, God actually makes a promise to Abram to make his name great, right? It's not wrong to be made much of. It's not wrong to have a great name in and of itself. The question then is this, who is making the name great and for what purpose? You know, someone's name can be great for self-seeking reasons or self-giving reasons, right? Abram's name was made great because he was a man of faith through whom God blessed all peoples. Uh, there, there are many people with great names in, in, in church Christian history. We think about the Apostle Paul. He has a name of greatness because he sacrificed and gave of himself for the sake of the gospel. We might think of people like... Um, like missionary Jim Elliott, who has a, a great name in the church and in Christian history now because he sacrificed his life to spread the gospel abroad over the earth. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. It's not wrong to have a great name. And, it, you know, it's, those are good purposes to have a great name. It's, the purpose for the name being great is important here, but it's also worth asking who's making the name great. That's a vital question here, right? Here in, our quest, here in our passage, it's these men who are trying to make their own name great. In Genesis 12, in contrast, it was God who said to Abram, I'm going to make your name great, right? Our, our job in life is not to make our own names great. Our job in life is to glorify God and do good to our neighbors and to let God take care of whose name is or isn't great. If we're doing things, even good things, with a motivation to make our own names great, well, that's, that automatically defiles what we're doing, right? That's self-exalting and idolatrous and proud, and that's the case here. The people were building this city and this tower to make their own names great. That's fine work on its own, and yet the self-exalting motives still defile what would be otherwise good work. But then not only is it God evicting and self-exalting, it's also self-insuring, right? They're, they're, they're seeking a sense of security in this work. And we see this and that they're doing it lest, they say, lest they be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, the problem with this is, on the one hand, this is a failure to, to obey the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, right? Hum humanity there was commissioned to fill the earth, right? From the beginning, humanity was supposed to disperse and fill the earth with more and more image bearers and to spread the image of, of God abroad over the earth. But here they're resisting this divinely given purpose. And instead they're, they're clumping together in, in order to achieve a sense of assurance and security. They, they were evidently a, a deeply insecure people. Uh, they were afraid or anxious over something or other, and they felt that their safety and security could be found in, in sticking together to build this city. Of course, this is a, a clear indication to us that these people were far from God, because if they would have known and had fellowship with God, they would have known that He is all the security and stability one ultimately needs in life. And the same Storms once said that this is the source of our comfort, 
in a seemingly chaotic and crazy world. This is the foundation for our hope and security. When everything appears to be unraveling before our eyes, the sovereign Christ rules over all. Indeed, when you know and belong to the one who sovereignly rules over all things, you can be prepared to face the wildest thing the wildest things this world might throw at you. And you can do so with a sense of peace and stability and security because you know that whatever comes, this world is ultimately ruled by one who is utterly for you. But here, instead of looking to the one who rules over it all, they look to themselves and their city and their tower as their self-insuring work, which is ultimately doomed. And so in this next scene, the Lord himself steps in to do something about this God-evicting, self-exalting, self-insuring project. It says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, which is supposed to be a rather clear indication to us that this God-evicting business is utterly futile. This tower is meant to reach all the way up into the heavens, but God has to come down to see it. Of course, he doesn't, doesn't literally mean that God came down. It's using human language here to show us a divine reality, which is that God is so much bigger, so much higher, so much greater, so much more sovereign overall, and that this city in humanity is so far beneath and below him that his consideration of this tower is kind of like a human being stooping down to consider a teeny tiny little anthill. And as the Lord stoops down to consider this teeny tiny anthill here, he says there in verse 6, Behold, they're one people. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And then we see the Lord's come, let us statement. He says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And thus the Lord comes down in both judgment and mercy to confuse and divide humanity into all the differing nations and peoples of the earth that we see represented there in Genesis chapter 10. Now, I call it a judgment and a mercy, and I do that for a reason. It is a judgment. God moves toward confusing the languages of the citizens of Babel here as a response to human sin and depravity. Right? They're attempting a, a hostile yet futile take over of heaven. They're seeking to exalt themselves and reach a state of security in and of themselves apart from God. They're not seeking to glorify God and do good to their neighbors. They're not fulfilling the cultural mandate. They're not finding security and significance in God. And thus God sends consequences down. But it's also a grace. It's also a mercy here. This is just the beginning of what they'll do, he says. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them, he says. And hear me, in reading that, don't, don't think that the Lord is just trying to limit human achievement because human achievement is bad or wrong or unseemly or something. And don't make the mistake of thinking that the Lord was afraid that humanity might actually threaten his own sovereignty and, and lordship, right? The, the takeover of heaven is futile, can't happen. 
God cannot be actually evicted from the throne of heaven. He's not afraid that would happen. He's not afraid that humanity might achieve great things. No, we're, we're made to achieve great things, right? No, the, the reason the Lord sends this particular judgment against humanity here is because he's seeking to restrain their depravity from reaching it, the depths to which it might otherwise reach. Richard Phillips, again, he, he puts it this way, saying that the Lord's concern here was not, that man would, would achieve, not what man would achieve against God, but what man would do to himself in the blind folly of unbelief. In his mercy, the Lord sends this judgment to keep humanity back from the self-destructiveness of our own self-aggrandizement. And we see here that his judgment was effective. The passage closes by saying that the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, what are, what are we to take from this? What are we being instructed in and, and called to from this text? Well, for one, I believe we're being called here to run from the spirit of Babel. To run from the spirit of Babel. Because while, indeed, this, this episode and its events took place among a particular people in a particular time and place, the spirit of Babel... Its posture, its attitude, its demeanor is one shared by all of fallen humanity if left to ourselves. Of course, like the, the, the people of Babel, we're all called to do good and creative things in the cultural mandate. We're all called to invent and innovate, to start and build families, to, to make an imitation of our maker. We're called to be a people of knowledge and wisdom and vision. And yet, because of the folly and fallenness of our hearts, we so easily succumb to the same futility as these in Babel. And we forego doing all to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. We can so easily approach our callings with a motivation to exalt and ensure ourselves instead of to exalt and find our security in God. Maybe one of the most obvious ways in which we can do this is in our work, in our jobs. You know, at times... Our workplaces can be very, very competitive, can't they? Filled with tension and dissension, filled with derision and contention. Have you ever really stopped to, to think about why that is? It's because those involved are out to make a name for themselves, even if just in the small kingdom of the workplace. I wonder if you ever participate in that. I, I wonder if you ever find yourself feeling jealous or upset or angry when someone else does well or is successful or gets praised. I wonder if you ever participate in, 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 in putting others down behind their back or speaking negatively about others at work out of a sense of competition or rivalry. Have you ever demeaned or denigrated the, the work or the character or the efforts of those you work alongside? If so, could that be because your, your concern in your work is not to glorify God and do good to your neighbor, but to make a name for yourself, to exalt yourself? 
Or, or, or perhaps could it be because you are insecure and you're looking for security in your own success and reputation? Or we don't just do this at work. We can do this, we can do this in our homes, in our families. It's not entirely uncommon for us to see our households, our spouses, our children as existing as part of our self-glorification projects. Sometimes you can see this when, when as parents we get just so embarrassed and incensed by the misbehavior of our children. Have you ever done this when, you're, when your children do something sinful or wrong in front of others? That's all are bound to do. And as parents, instead of being more concerned with the repentance and character development of our children, we fly off the handle because they embarrassed us. They compromised our name-making project. They thwarted our self-glorification project. How dare they? They interfered with our making our names great. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. We can do this in church. We want to be seen as exceptional disciples of Christ, as ideal church members, as those who lead or serve in several areas, wear several hats, as those who are knowledgeable in, in Bible or theology and always have the right answers to whatever questions, as those who are admirable and, admirable and virtuous. And of course, that's all good. It's good to serve and lead and to be growing in, in knowledge and understanding. It's good to be godly and virtuous. It's good to be one who others depend on. But how easy is it for us to pursue all of these sorts of good things or even just the appearance of these good things with a motivation to make a name for ourselves, to be seen as admirable and great in the eyes of others? It seems from Genesis 11 here that our, our motivation can make all the difference. Of course, I, I can't help but say something about social media here when it comes to our self-glorification projects. I understand there are probably multiple various reasons that our social media platforms exist, but among them has to be the desire and motivation to make our names great at times. You know, these, these platforms exist in large part so that we can offer these, these carefully curated presentations of our lives and our appearances. And could it be that the, motive, the driving motivation for that, for some of us, is the admiration and praise and approval we receive from others as a result? Perhaps part of the reason these platforms exist and are successful is because they're seen as a way to bolster our sense of security and self-assurance and validate our, our name-making projects. Whether we seek to make our names great through work or family or in the church or on social media or wherever else and through whatever other means, we are left with this glaring question here. Is searching for significance and security in such a way actually lastingly satisfying for us? Does it actually give us what we're hungering and aching for? Will it actually give us the kind of life and existence we desire? Does it lead to a real peace and contentment and fulfillment of life? It does not. 
in reality, it will only ever actually lead to ongoing anxiety and restlessness and unease because it's so fleeting and temporary and unreliable. But there is a better way. Christopher Watkin, again, has said that the tragedy of the Babylonian quest is that it turns its back on the name God gives, which is the only name grounded in grace. Seeking to make a name for ourselves condemns us to a punishing regime of ever inadequate performance, ever more forced and filtered self-presentation, and the ever provisional, ever changeable verdict of the social network on the name we have made for ourselves. How much sweeter, more peace-bringing, more liberating is it to receive a name from God, child, image, beloved. In other words, letting God speak over us and letting him determine who we are is ever more satisfying and secure than whatever name we might seek to make for ourselves in our own efforts, is ever more satisfying and secure than whatever the court of public opinion might say of us. If you want real peace, real satisfaction in life, run from the spirit of Babel. Run to your maker. Which brings us next to the call to remember the God who comes down. I love the Bible. I love the little statements like this, so simple to read, a child could understand it, and yet they pack such a huge theological punch. This statement is so simple, you could move right past it, and yet when you slow down and just think about it for a moment, the theology it communicates is astounding. God comes down here. For one, as we've already said, this, this statement communicates how great and high and sovereign our God is. He's so great and high and sovereign that this mighty and remarkable tower in human sight is like a little anthill to him. He's got to come down and get down on his hands and knees and squint his eyes to even take a look at this little pathetic thing. The statement communicates this kind of reality, but what's more is that it also communicates that he's the kind of God who does such a thing, right? He's mighty and great and big, but he's also intimate and imminent and involved in human affairs and human history. He's sovereign, but he's not aloof. He's the almighty majesty, but he's not indifferent to human affairs. And so he comes down in grace and in judgment. And, and some of us need to hear this right now. I, I was just chatting with someone this past week who was feeling so anxious and troubled about the state of our world right now and about the state of our nation right now. Things might seem to some of us sometimes to be just out of control. The problems facing our world and our nation might seem so big and insurmountable. Perhaps they seem that way to the people of God here in Genesis 11, as they watched and witnessed the building of the city and this tower, and yet remember, remember the God who comes down here. He's the same God of Isaiah 40. The prophet says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as the dust on the scales. The dust on the scales. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like little grasshoppers. 
That is your God, Christian. And while these nations are like a teeny, tiny little drop in a bucket, while they're like a little speck of dust in his eyes, while they're like a little grasshopper, a little ant, he nonetheless is not far off and aloof. He's intimately involved in the events and affairs of human history as we see here in Genesis 11. And what's more is that as the one who's intimately involved, he is intimately involved so that all things, Ephesians 1.11, are being worked according to the counsel of his will. So that all things, Romans 8.28, are being worked together for your good and for his glory. And if that's true, if that is your God, Well, you can look at the events and affairs and happenings of this world with a peace that passes all understanding and with an enduring hope that cannot be shaken. Remember the God who comes down. And lastly, rejoice in the reversal of Babel. I've got to hurry up here. The reason you can run from the spirit of Babel, the reason the God who comes down can be your God and my God is because the story of Babel does not have the last word here. Indeed, here the human family is dispersed and divided into the various nations and peoples of the world. But in just the next chapter of Genesis here, the Lord makes his promise to Abram. And he makes a promise to bless and redeem all the peoples and nations of the world. Paul says in Galatians 3, 8, in Genesis 12, the Lord preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. In you, all these nations that were just judged and dispersed and divided and confused, they're going to be blessed and redeemed and rescued and restored. And friends, the Lord has fulfilled that very promise to Abraham and his far off grandson, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, you will see that Jesus is Abraham's offspring according to the flesh. But that's not all he is. He is also the eternal Son of God who has no beginning and who has not himself been made. In other words, he is God himself come down for us. But unlike Genesis 11 here, in Jesus, God is not come down this time to judge, but to serve. Not to disperse the peoples of the earth in judgment, but to gather the peoples of the earth in salvation. And he did that by taking on the judgment we deserve on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to the sovereign God we find revealed here in Genesis 11. So that we who have so often been a people marked by the spirit of Babel, we might instead receive the name he alone can give us of being God's beloved children who bear his very image, who remember him and who know the comfort of having the sovereign God who's working all things together for our good. But what's more is that he didn't just die in our place and for our sins. He also rose three days later to show forth his victory over sin and death. And he later ascended into heaven to be there enthroned over all the peoples and nations of this world. And he there now reigns and sovereignly rules over all, over all as the true king of kings and lord of lords. Ozymandias ain't got nothing on Jesus. 
And from that place, he sent the Holy Spirit. Which we see beginning there, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And what do we see there? What do we see in Acts 2 that relates to Genesis 11 here? What we see, as Luke says in Acts 2, 5, that in Jerusalem, there were gathered people from every nation under heaven. And the nations are there. And in God's providence, while the nations are there gathered in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit comes down upon that gathering. And when he comes down, the people in Christ's church begin to speak in various languages, the various languages of all the peoples and nations of the earth. And in those languages, Acts 2.11 says that they speak and preach about the mighty works of God and the nations understand them. All the various nations And peoples of the earth are present there hearing the gospel of God's glory and grace being proclaimed. And as a result, about 3,000 of them are saved and baptized into a church where they all live together in fellowship with one heart and with one soul. In other words, Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost is like a holy reversal of Babel wherein God's people are gathered in, not dispersed wherein God's name is glorified and not the name of man, and wherein humanity is not brought into confusion and division, but into unity and clarity together. And friends, that was just the beginning. Because by God's grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ is continuing to spread abroad over the face of all the earth. And God is continuing to save and redeem and call a people from all the nations of the earth to himself. And one day, Revelation 7 shows us that the people will be gathered together to worship and glorify the name of Jesus Christ forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. We see there the Apostle John describe this, this future reality where in a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, will be standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they're going to be crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the nations will be gathered in and united to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and the Lord of lords. And we will look upon his mighty works, friends, and we will rejoice. 